as we come and now open his word. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you reveal yourself to us through your word. I stand up here week after week, and in some ways it's the most helpless, dependent thing that I can think of, because I desire so much for your spirit to move in such a mighty way, drawing us to the glory and the realities of redemption, that, Father, you would replace our despair with hope, that you would replace our weariness with strength, that you would replace our lovelessness with love, our lack of connection with communion and intimacy, that all the things that we struggle with in life, Jesus is the answer to, whether we see him or not. So Father, I pray that you would make Jesus real to us in this time, in a mighty way, that we would be, that you would draw near to us. Thank you that you have given us your word for the sole reason that you love us. You could have stayed quiet, you could have stayed silent, but you have revealed yourself to us out of love for us. So open our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And I will ask if you're able, if that you would stand one more time for the reading of God's word which this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Isaiah writes, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I have a question. I want to know who is responsible for picking out or choosing in the kind of the the treasury of hymns that we have. What actually qualifies as an Advent or Christmas hymn? 
Who actually gets to, like personally, I think we could sing How Great Thou Art every Sunday, and that qualifies as a Christmas hymn for me. But here's one that I really think should go in the catalog of Advent or Christmas hymns. Charles Wesley's classic hymn, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. Now, I won't do, other pastors have these great singing voices. You know, there's a reason I go to the back and I sing. I want to make sure I'm not a distraction as joyful noises are emanating from the depths of my being. But I wish I could sing right now because I would belt out, Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employed. Ye blind, behold, your Savior comes, and leap ye lame for joy. Because what you have there is Isaiah's picture in poetic form of our third theme of Advent, joy and the hope and glory through the fullness of salvation that it provides. And I love how one commentator put it when he says, this is what God does. It is his professional business to make spiritual cripples into world beaters. And his motivating power is joy. When Joel was young, the two sets of books we read to him, pretty religiously, were the Lord of the Rings, with the Hobbit, of course. You have to include the prequel in there. It is a rule, by the way. The Hobbit goes with the Lord of the Rings. And the Chronicles of Narnia. And I bet you think I'm quoting from the Lord of the Rings, don't you? <laughs> Not this morning. C.S. Lewis, is one of his classic quotes out of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, describing Narnia to Lucy and Susan and Edmund and Peter as they're coming through, says, Narnia is a place where there's always winter, but never Christmas. But when Aslan comes in sight, wrong will be right. At the sound of his roars, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Isaiah is speaking to a people where there is winter but never Christmas. He is saying, when the Messiah comes, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to their home, their ultimate home. See, what Mount Zion represents is our ultimate home, the presence of God, communion with God, the fact of love and connection and significance and intimacy. They will return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Wow, what an incredible promise and hope. Everlasting joy shall be upon their head. I need us to be honest, though, for a second. What does that feel like? When we look, because Advent is a time, as I've been saying, a time to take, as Fleming Rutledge said, a fearless inventory into the realities of the darkness. The darkness that still is permeating everywhere in the world, the darkness we see all over, whether it's violence, whether it's relational strife, whether it's polarization and division, whether it's hatred, whether, whatever that darkness might be. And if we're honest, the darkness, even if it doesn't rain, that still exists within us. 
that goes through our hearts. What does joy even feel like? Joy does not mean the end of difficulties in life. Joy does not mean that it's kind of pie in the sky and everything's great and all your circumstances. But joy, and here's what the word means, it doesn't mean happiness and pleasure. It means fullness of life. The fullness of happiness, but the fullness of being entering into the darkness with a raw honesty and be able to enter into it. How? Because of hope in glory. Because hope is a living reality. And Isaiah gives us that picture of hope and glory in two words in this text. Okay? I'm trying to make my outlines really simple so you can remember them. Okay? We've gone from sentences or, or paragraphs to sentences, now words. Okay? I want you to remember two words. Remember renewal and remember return. Now I'll put them in sentences so I can fill them out. Joy in the renewal of all things is the first half of this poem, and joy in the ultimate safe return home is the second half of this poem. Okay? First of all, we need to understand what the biblical story is so we can put this text in its context, because the biblical story is always one of light penetrating darkness, renewal and grace in the face and in the context of judgment, and it's no different here. Isaiah 35 follows, and here's going to be the most deep thing I'm going to say all morning. Isaiah 35 follows Isaiah 34. <laughs> that was profound, wasn't it? Y'all are take, I love watching you take notes and go, why am I writing this down? And Isaiah 34 is the judgment part of this, where Isaiah is prophesying the Lord summoning the nations and the whole world. Verse 1 of Isaiah 34, the Lord says, Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction and has given them over to slaughter. I take it from that. The Lord means business. Judgment is real. Justice is real. The Lord will not be mocked. And as Ray Ortland points out in his commentary, he's saying Isaiah is now moving us towards closure. He is taking Assyria, which was the political threat to the nation of Israel, the people of God in that time. They're beginning to fade from view. And the prophet is now addressing the whole world. The one nation he does mention specifically is surprisingly Edom. He mentions him three times in chapter 34. And Ortland asks why. He says because Edom typifies the whole world. Remember now, Edom comes from Esau, Jacob's brother, thus is related to the people of God. So Ortland continues, Edom tried to block the salvation that God was bringing into the world. Edom then is the antithesis to God's pilgrim people. That is why Isaiah is singling them out. The ethos of the Edomite culture is the spirit of the whole world, a spirit that finds its salvation in the resources of this temporal, physical order. Listen to that. That's what he's saying. Edom represents something. They're symbolic of something. There is symbolic to the fact that you are determined to be your own God. 
that you're determined to be the master of your own fate, the determiner of your own joy. You will find salvation and joy yourself. That's what Edom represents. And Isaiah is saying, we have to get past Edom to be saved by God. So Ortland writes, chapter 34 shows us what will become of everyone who buys into the world, while chapter 35 shows us what will become of everyone who banks everything on the promised salvation of God. Thus, Isaiah 35 is a beautiful poem consisting of seven stanzas around the themes of renewal and return, the fullness of redemption, the fullness of salvation, of joy, of hope in the midst of the darkness. Now listen to how he puts it. The first half of the poem is all, is all about the renewal of all things. And it begins in verse 1 by saying, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Now, what do the wilderness and the dry land and the desert represent? I've said this to you many times before. The wilderness and the dry land, that is not like what we think of as a walk in the woods or a walk in the park. The wilderness was a scary dangerous, arid, barren place. The wilderness is this biblical image of what it feels like to be lonely, to be isolated, to feel hopeless, to feel... Stephanie and Joel shared this during their Sunday school time when they said challenges facing French pastors who are trying to do gospel work and gospel ministry in a secular post-Christian world. And they said the biggest challenge they face is despair. That's what the wilderness represents. But look at what it says. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Verse 2, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. We haven't found out why or how yet. Just know that this is promised at this point. It says the glory of Lebanon, and Lebanon means the work of God here, not the work of man, shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and the picture of Carmel there refers back almost like to Eden. It refers to a garden land, rightly cultivated, rightly ordered. And Sharon, which means the standard of beauty. Now why will this restoration, this renewal of all things happen because they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. It is almost reminiscent of what Paul says. As a matter of fact, I think this is the Old Testament background for what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 when he says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. But the promise is one of hope. The wilderness, the desert, will blossom, will flourish. Shalom is going to come to all creation. We may not see it now, but it's a reality. Which, what implication does that have for our life? Well, look with me at verses 3 and 4. 
because he says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble needs. knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With recompense of God, he will come and save you. One of the commentators I've been quoting and reading a lot on the book of Isaiah is an Old Testament scholar by the name of Alec Motir. And Motir says the implication of the stanza is that the people of God are still in the period of waiting and need encouraging in three areas. In the realm of action, strengthen your weak hands. In the realm of stability, their feeble needs, and conviction, their anxious hearts. He writes, hope is the cordial the people of God need to keep them going. See, in Isaiah's time, the people of God are waiting for the Messiah's first advent, fulfilled at what we celebrate at Christmas time. But we live in Advent as well. We are awaiting, and now I will quote from the Lord of the Rings, we are awaiting the return of the king. We are waiting for the return of the king when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When he will come in judgment, which simply does not mean only punishment, but judgment means putting everything right. When every wrong will be made right. That's why one of my favorite parts of the return of the king, now I am quoting Tolkien, by the way, is when Aragorn is coming into the land and they're wanting to know if he's the true king. And they say, well, let's test him and bring him to the house of, houses of healing because in the hands of the king are healing hands. When Jesus Christ came to the earth, what did he do? Primarily, he did two things. He taught and he healed. He did teaching. And what was the summation, the foundation, the summary, if you would, of his teaching? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is near. It is clear. The long-awaited shalom, the wilderness will rejoice. The desert will be glad. It will blossom. It will flourish. Shalom has come. It's at hand. Now, Pretend everybody in the ancient Near East at that point was from Missouri. And they were like, show me. Because immediately following every one of his teachings came what? Healings. The inauguration, the beginning of making everything right. Of coming into a widow's life at the widow's son's funeral. And raising her son anticipating healing, of coming to a wedding celebration when they ran out of wine and saving the best for a last, of taking a leper who was always afraid and had to live on the outside, on the margins, who couldn't even associate. You know, we say, what's the solution? So come to worship and receive the gospel and all of these things. He wasn't even allowed to come to worship. He had to yell, unclean, unclean, as he was going out. And what does Jesus do? He takes him and he touches him. You realize that's much more than physical healing right there. He is offering him the rule and the reign of God. 
He is touching him holistically, physically healing the leprosy, healing his spirit, healing his soul, healing him in every dimension of life. So he proclaims the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he is about to bring it. And what happens when he brings it? Verse 5, then the eyes of the blind that couldn't see, they'll be open. The ears of the deaf that couldn't hear will be unstopped. And then the lame shall leap for joy like a deer. And the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Hope becomes experience. Now we need to ask, this is promised, the renewal of all things. How and why does this happen? How can we be so confident? How can we, in the words of Alec Motier, not have a grim determination, kind of grit your teeth and face the darkness, but a resolve, a believing, not a passive, but a believing determination that strengthens us in the resolve, which is what real joy is all about. Fullness of life that never practices denial is raw in its honesty, but still moves forward. Look with me at the rest of the poem and the promises. And this is joy in the safe return home. Verse 6 begins, For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. Now, isn't it interesting? We read in verse 1, the wilderness will be glad, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom. How does that happen? How does that occur? Verse 6 tells us exactly how it occurs. New life. Because what does waters represent? See, the wilderness be glad. Why? Because living water is going to break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. What was lifeless, barren, arid, and desperate will now receive new life. And we'll see how that comes in just a minute. But I want to give you an application here for a second. Waters always symbolize new life in the scriptures. Jesus says something very interesting in John chapter 7 where it says on the last and greatest day of the feast, and it's the Feast of Tabernacles, he stands up and he says, and it almost he cries out in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, now this is absolutely fascinating, because think about what spiritual thirst means. If you're thirsty for life. This is not just, do you need a glass of, you know, sweet tea. This is, are you thirsty for intimacy, and for life, and for joy, and for hope? You're tired of despair. You're tired of weariness. You're tired of the burdens. You're tired of having to prove yourself. You're tired of, will I ever make it? Will I ever work it? The uncertainty, all of that. If anyone is thirsty, look at what he's saying. Come to me and drink. So he's making a pretty profound claim there. He is saying he's the fountain of life. He's the source of joy. He's the source of everything your heart longs for. And he says, as we drink deeply, As we bank everything on him, it's called faith. He makes this promise. He says, streams of living water, new life, overflow from within us. Now, without wanting to get too graphic here, when things are bubbling up inside of us and they come out, where do they spill out to? 
everything around us. So new life is meant to spill out through us to other people. I want you to think about this and apply this to life within the body of Christ and life in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and in our schools and everywhere we live. And I want us to recognize we need to please do not underestimate the power of life-giving encouragement to other people. The wilderness will be glad and the Desert will blossom and rejoice. Why? Because new life, the waters of life, spill into others. I want you to think about that. I'm sometimes amazed at just how the littlest thing can improve what I'll call my joy quotient. Kind word. Sometimes a song. Somebody giving me a phone call. I'll tell you a quick story. Maybe ten or so years ago, Steve Brown came and did a missions conference from us. And so I had never met Steve Brown before. So I was like everyone else who only heard him on the radio, telling me to think about that. And I would often think about that. And I'm like, this is so cool. I'm going to get to meet Steve Brown. I'm kind of excited about that. So he comes Friday night. We always have, what, a dinner or some sort of get-together. So I'm before the fellowship hall, and here comes Steve Brown, and I introduce myself. And lo and behold... He knew me. He said, and I can't this, do justice to this imitation, so forgive me. But he goes, hello, Jeff, it's nice to meet you. I would like you to know I pray for you every day. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> My jaw dropped. I went, ah. The wilderness of my soul sprang to new life because rivers of living water flowed from this man and touched me. Do not underestimate the impact of how you come across to others. Waters break forth. They gush. They overflow in the wilderness. Streams in the desert. And look at this. The burning sand, that which absorbs moisture, shall become what? A pool. And the thirsty ground, again absorbing moisture, will become springs of water. The haunt of jackals, that doesn't sound friendly, does it? Now becomes reeds and rushes. And a highway will be there. In the midst of this landscape, a highway will be there. And it will be called the way of holiness. Now we don't know where this highway is going, but the text tells us who can't walk on it. Because it says, the unclean shall not pass over it. Now I read this, and all of a sudden, my jaw drops for a totally different reason. I go, ugh. Because I'm unclean. And all of us are unclean. Naturally, because of our insistence of being our own God, our insistence that we will find salvation on our own, our insistence that we will prove ourselves, validate ourselves, and make our own life work on our own terms. Basically, we tell God we don't want him and don't need him in our lives. Okay, Unclean doesn't just mean immoral or a bad person. Unclean means we basically are rejecting God. And so we don't walk over this way of holiness. But then it goes on to say, 
It shall belong to those who walk on the way. I'm perking now. Where's that way? And then I love this part. Even if they are fools, I'm going, oh, okay, this is for me. Even if they're fools, they will not go astray. Now I'm like, I want to find this way. It tells us no lion shall be there, nor shall there be any ravenous beast come upon it. In other words, the dangers will be gone. The dangers will be removed. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord. Who are the redeemed and the ransomed of the Lord? What does it mean to be redeemed and ransomed? It obviously speaks of a substitute. It speaks of one who's going to be our next of kin and come and do for us what we are incapable of doing for ourselves. To redeem and ransom means to buy back, to purchase at the cost of a ransom price. And the ransom price, who is the redeemed? The rede- who is the one who paid this ransom price and who did this? Jesus. He paid the ransom. And what was the ransom price? It was his own life, his own blood. He pays the price with his own life. I love again how Motir puts it. He says this text here is speaking of the Lord as the one who can redeem his people. He identifies with them as their next of kin. Listen to his language here. Willingly shouldering on their helpless behalf and in their place all and every one of their needs paying their price. What did Jesus get? He got exile. What do we get? We get a safe return home. What did Jesus get? Rejection. What do we get? Belonging. We're ransomed. What did Jesus get? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do we get? Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Friends, this is what sustains us in the darkness. This is what gives us the resolve to keep going. This is what strengthens weak hands and makes firm feeble knees. It is a living hope. So let me ask you, point blank, what are you going to do with this? No one sums it up as well as Ray Ray Ortland. Ray Ortland says, Isaiah is now leading us to the point of personal decision. He has been showing us God and ourselves with a new clarity. What has Isaiah told us about God? Only that God is our most loyal ally in the struggle of life. He's made promises to us. He's proven himself already. He deserves to be trusted. And what has Isaiah told us about ourselves? We barely trust God. God is faithful, but we're guarded. We need to make up our minds. Are we going to live by faith in God or by faith in ourselves? Will God save us or do we have to save ourselves? God defends us against our ultimate enemy our sin and our guilt. 
He rescues us from condemnation by justifying us on the basis of what Christ has done, not on the basis of what we deserve. God treats us in a way that has nothing to do with what we deserve. But do we allow ourselves to enjoy our acceptance, freely purchased for us by a holy God? Or are we constantly on edge, wondering how he might punish us next? Friends, what a salvation. Only God can save us. Only God can make us part of the Isaiah 35 salvation future coming home that our hearts most long for and desire. Will you rest in the God who makes all things new, including you? Teach us. This may not make any sense to us. This may seem so out of the box and contrary to anything we are thinking. It may seem too good to be true. How can you accept us when we know how bad a life we live, when we know how dark we are inside and how dark the world is? Help us, Father, to trust and to bank everything on the fact that you accept us completely based on the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray there may be somebody sitting out there today who is hearing this maybe for the very first time. I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to abandon all hope in ourselves, but embrace the hope that you give us. And Father, all of us, every single one of us struggle with trying to prove ourselves, trying to be good enough, competent enough, worthy enough. Oh, that we would get off that treadmill and that we would rest in your love. While we are pilgrim people on the road headed to the promised land, forgive us for all the detours we make. When we stop off and we say, oh, that tavern will be ultimate life, and that place will be ultimate life. No. Help us to be on the road and know that our ultimate life, our ultimate love, our ultimate desire, what we were built for is you, Lord Jesus. You are the way. And we embrace your promise, even though we don't experience it in full now. The promise of shalom, of flourishing, of blossoming. Lord, thank you so much that the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad and the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus because waters have broken through the wilderness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.